Hey, what's up, universe? So, this is going to be, what, episode 9 of It's a Choice. So, in this episode, I'm going to do how we choose to relate. And that can be to anything, right? To another person, to ourselves, to our sex, to our addictions, to our money, to our parents, to our kids, to our cars, to our job, to our coworkers, to whatever the fuck, it doesn't really matter, to our TV shows. How do we choose to relate? How do we choose to relate? And I'm gonna kind of meander on this just a little bit. <clears throat> I'm gonna tie a couple different things together here. So I've got some stuff from Buddhism I wanna bring in. I've got stuff from the Kabbalion I wanna bring in. I have stuff from Michael Schneider's A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe that I want to bring in. Uh, so I'm just going to preface this right now, just give credit to the sources that I'm going to cite. So i got the Kabbalion, written by the Three Initiates, Michael Schneider's A Beginner's Guide to Constructing the Universe, that book. Um, I'm going to read a little bit off of, from an article written by Andrew... Olinsky um, from tricycle.org. The name of the article is Mind Like a Mirror. And what I wanted to basically start off with was that in this 3D reality of ours, there's always three aspects of a relationship. Like right now, I'm relating to you or you're relating to me. There's me and you. Those are the two points, but then there's the relationship between the two of us, which is the third point. You can't have anything without immediately having the number three when it comes to two individuals and then the third. You always have the relationship. You've always got that manifestation happening. You just simply can't have it with it. Can't be in this plane of existence without that. So... I wanted to start off with the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism, right? These are intellectually easy to understand, yet hard to practice at, at some point, I believe. At least for me it is. First Noble Truth is suffering, pain, and misery exist in life. We all know that. We've all, ex we've all experienced that. Suffering arises from attachment to desires to desires, not just attachment in general, but attachment to desires. Now, I'm a self-proclaimed word nerd. I like to parse language, and it's highly important, in my opinion, when one does work such as figuring out what our stories and interpretations and how we choose to influence ourselves and how the subconscious mind works. Words are extremely important. So attachment to desires. Let's fucking look into that real quick. What the hell does desire mean? What meaning do you give it? Well, by definition, according, is a, a desire is a strong feeling of wanting to have something or wishing for something to happen. And I like to even go further and look at the etymology of a word. Where the fuck did it come from? Where did we arrive to this word that we have today? So the etymology of desire is a craving or a yearning, an emotion directed toward attainment or possession of an object, a sensual appetite, physical desire, maybe lust, 
that which is longed for. To wish or long for, express a wish to obtain. So it's basically coming from a place of lack. Desire, at a fundamental level, is telling your mind in a subconscious way that you don't have it, you're lacking it, and you just are pining for it. So it's coming from a place of lack. So suffering, according to Buddhism, is attachment to lack. Suffering ceases or stops when attachment to desire ceases. So when we stop attaching to our lack, oh, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time, I don't have this, I don't have enough energy, I don't have enough what the fuck ever, whatever it is, that's what causes suffering, right? And the fourth noble truth is freedom from suffering is possible by practicing the Eightfold Path. And I'm not going to get into the Eightfold Path, but that's part of practicing Buddhism. But anyway, the reason I brought that stuff up is because <clears throat> I wanted to go into the next thing from Buddhism, which is the five hindrances, right? This is where I'm going to be reading from that article. And the five hindrances are places that we choose to operate from that muddle up our mind, right? So there's the sense of desire, again, right? That's one of these things. And it's likened to putting like dye or food coloring into water. Like think of your mind as a bowl of water with nothing in it. It's very still. It's very reflective. It's very calm. And that's basically where you want to try to be most of the time, if not all the time, so you can create from that space. You can choose from that space. It's a very powerful place to be. But when we have our sense of desire, our sense of lack, it's like putting food coloring into that water and clouding up our mind. That's the way it's likened. Ill will, like when you're angry with somebody, pissed off, it's like boiling the water. It's like causing the ripples coming up from the bottom and causing all of that disturbance in the mind where you can't see any reflection because of the disturbance of the water, which is similar to another one further down, which is restlessness and remorse, which is like water being stirred up by wind and rippling. That's on the outside, on the surface of the water. Boiling and rage is coming from internal, from the bottom up, where restlessness and remorse is more like the gale of wind that going across the water, causing it to get all choppy. And then there's being lazy, basically, where it's likened to having the water plants like algae take root and cover the surface of the water so it can, nothing can be seen. And then there's doubt, and lack of confidence, and questioning ourselves, our anxieties. And then it's basically like muddied water or water that's left in the dark. And the reason that I bring those up is because we have all operated from those places, right? We all have those things. We've all, we, that's why they're called the five hindrances. They happen all the time. And the number five is interesting to me because it's the seed of life. When you look at what the Greeks did with numbers and other cultures as well, you get into the quality of a number and not just the quantity of the number. 
And so with the five hindrances, these could be looked at as the seeds of the things that keep us in suffering. They could be the seed of the things that keep us from having that clear reflective surface, that clear water, that calmness, that stillness to create and choose from a powerful place. And you might be wondering, what the fuck does this have to do with how we relate? Well, it has everything to do with how we relate. If we had any of those five hindrances going on or multiple, multiple of them going on at any one time, we're not going to relate well to ourselves or to the other, whatever the other is, be it a person, a thing, what doesn't matter. And it, like I said, I'm going to kind of meander around here, but it just makes me think of a couple of sayings. One is, is that no amount of shame or guilt is going to change the past. No amount of anxiety is going to shape the future. There's only the now. And I heard another saying too that I found pretty powerful that goes into personal relationships. And the, basically the, the gist of the saying is when you and your partner are fighting, you both need to keep in mind that it's the two of you versus the problem, not you versus them. And that's where this comes into the number three, in my opinion, again. Because in that particular situation, you have the unit of the relationship. The two of you are one, right? That's a union. It's a partnership. So it's the two of you, that relationship versus the problem, which is the second element, seeking a solution, which is the number three. Right? There's a way to reconcile that. So I want to read from Michael Snyder's book because it plays into that it plays into that whole example right there. When he speaks about the number three, this is one of his paragraphs. No enduring resolution of any kind is possible without three aspects, two opposites and a neutral, binding, balancing, arbitrating, transforming presence. Knowing how to choose the third factor means the difference between a conflict's resolution and its perpetuation. The third element, if properly chosen, pierces the valley and achieves a previously unknown level of experience, one of balance and completion. So the reason I bring that up is because interpretations are characters in our stories. There's how do we relate to our life? There's us, our life, our stories. Interpretations are characters in our stories. If you want to change your fucking story, start changing your interpretations. There's a great exercise that Jim has in TCP. Think of something. Think of how you're interpreting it first off, and then think of seven other fucking interpretations you can have. And the first three will probably be easy to come up with because they're comfortable. But then you start to think of like maybe other ways you can start to interpret the situation at hand. And it becomes more uncomfortable because you're not used to thinking about it that way. But it will change your fucking story. It'll change everything. What do you choose to make something mean? 
Nothing has the meaning but what you give it, right? And I bring this up because I processed a giant fucking trigger a handful of weeks ago. And I sat for like three days, four days, all day, basically, crying and feeling massive amounts of pain in ways that I haven't felt in a long fucking time. And I wrote like 19 pages of shit, but it wasn't really just writing. Those are 19 pages of questions. I probably asked myself about 50 or 60 questions about what the fuck am I making this mean? So I started off, what am I writing this down? I'd ask myself a question and then I would answer. It was a huge Q and A question, answer, question, answer. And as I'm asking myself the questions, I'd find a word or two in my answer. And I'd be like, what the fuck am I making that mean? And I would just get recursive about this shit. What the fuck am I making that mean? What the fuck am I making that mean? What the fuck am I making that mean? And I just kept digging and digging into my interpretations about what the fuck I'm making something mean. Because again, we speak our fucking existence. We speak it into existence. We speak our life into existence. Speaking is a very creative, powerful fucking thing. It creates life. We wouldn't have all of the laws we wouldn't have the fucking constitution. We wouldn't have the Declaration of Independence. We wouldn't have any of that shit if words were so fucking meaningless. If they didn't actually create something. So I bring that up because one of the things that struck me about the number three and choosing something that is either going to perpetuate my fucking problem or successfully conclude it, right? Am I going to resolve my trigger? And this goes into personal relationships and everything too. I mean, how many of us have chosen to be angry or chosen to be devastated or sad or jealous or any of that stuff? My particular example is around jealousy, um, which when I wrote it out, I was like, fuck that. Talk about giving away my power. So, you know, I was like, ask myself, why do I still, why do I feel jealous? And so I looked up the definition of jealousy, right? And basically, the definition of jealousy is the resentment against somebody because of that person's success or advantages. And I was like, well, what the fuck does resentment mean? Let's look that up. Let's just make sure that I really know what the fuck it means. Because there's a lot of times we think we know what the fucking word means. But once you really get down into like what it actually fucking means, it really gives you some clarity about shit. Resentment means a feeling or showing of displeasure or indignation at a person, act, remark, etc. from a sense of injury or insult. And so I put that shit together and I was like, fuck. So basically I'm choosing to be injured or insulted by somebody's success and advantages. Talk away. That talk about giving away my power. And as soon as I saw that, I'm like, fuck that, man. Like that's fucked up. But we normally don't take the time to do that shit, do we? We just kind of run through life and we just choose whatever fucking interpretation is close at hand because it's comfortable and we're like, fuck it. That's the way life is. Like, not really. It's not how it has to be. It's just the way you're choosing it to be. That was crazy to me. 
And there was a lot of other crazy shit that I fucking dug up there. I was like, fuck. So this takes me to what I want to talk about with the Kabbalion. And there's seven hermetic principles, and I'm not going to read them all, but there's one that I just particularly love that plays very much into relating to anything. And it's principle number four. And it's the principle of polarity. And I will read for you just for a little bit because I find this one fascinating as to how it relates. The short version is everything is dual. Everything has poles. Everything has its pair of opposites. Like and unlike are the same. Opposites are identical in nature, but different in degree. Extremes meet. All truths are but half-truths. All paradoxes may be reconciled. <laughs> says the principle embodies the truth that everything is dual. Everything has two poles. Everything has its pair of opposites, all of which were old hermetic axioms. It explains the old paradoxes that have perplexed so many, which have been stated as follows. Thesis and antithesis are identical in nature, but different in degree. Opposites are the same, deferring only in degree. The pairs of opposites may be reconciled. Extremes meet. Everything is and isn't at the same time. All truths are but half-truths. Every truth is half-false. There are two sides to everything, etc., etc., etc. It explains that in everything there are two poles or opposite aspects, and that opposites are really the two extremes of the same thing with, with many varying degrees between them. To illustrate, heat and cold, although opposites are really the same thing, the differences consisting merely of degrees of the same thing. Look at your thermometer and see if you can discover where heat terminates and cold begins. There is no such thing as absolute heat or absolute cold. These two terms, heat and cold, simply indicate varying degrees of the same thing. And that same thing, which manifests as heat and cold, is merely a form, variety, and rate of vibration. So heat and cold are simply the two poles of that which we call heat. And the phenomena attendant thereupon are manifestations of the principle of polarity. The same principle manifests in the case of light and darkness, which are the same thing. The difference consisting of varying degrees between the two poles of the phenomena. Where does darkness leave off and light begin? What is the difference between large and small, between hard and soft, between black and white, between sharp and dull, between noise and quiet, between high and low, between positive and negative? The principle of polarity explains these paradoxes, and no other principle can supersede it. The same principle operates on the mental plane. Let us take a radical and extreme example, that of love and hate. Two mental states apparently totally different, and yet there are degrees of hate and degrees of love and a, bit, and a middle point in which we use terms like and dislike 
which shade into each other so gradually that sometimes we are at a loss to know whether we like or dislike or neither. And all are simply degrees of the same thing, as you will see if you will think but for a moment. And more than this, and considered more important by the Hermetis, Hermetis, it is possible to change the vibration of hate to the vibrations of love in one's own mind and in the minds of others. Many of you who read these lines have had personal experiences of the involuntary rapid transition from love to hate and the reverse in your own case and that of others. And you will therefore realize the possibility of this being accomplished by the use of will by means of the hermetic formulas, good and evil are but two poles of the same thing. And the hermetist understands the art of transmuting evil into good by means of an application of the principle of polarity. In short, the art of polarization becomes a phase of mental alchemy known and practiced by the ancient and modern hermetic masters. An understanding of the principle will enable one to change his own polarity as well as that of others if he will devote the time and study necessary to master the art. So that just comes down to choice and understanding opposites and then interpretations and how that impacts our stories. And then again to the number three, how we relate to those things. It's you, your stories, your interpretations, and then what are you going to choose to reconcile that? What are you going to choose as a resolution from that? If properly chosen, pierces the valley and achieves a previously unknown level of experience, one of balance and completion. Between a conflict's resolution or its perpetuation. And then the last thing that I want to talk about here, I'm just going to leave it off on this. This is from the number five, but I found it to be applicable to the now with this. It says, I'm going to paraphrase this a bit. Periodically, it's natural to part Wait, it's a natural part of our growth process to periodically leave our center and to come back to it, just as we must expand and contract to breathe. The creative pulse of the dyad between center and turbulence is part of our growing process. The rhythmic interplay between the impulse to divide ourselves from our center and the yearning that is expressed in our longing to return is found in the experience of constantly searching for and finding meaning in our lives. The interplay between these two forces manifests itself in the world as a curve. That's why the transformative path is characterized by a spiral and not another shape. A spiral pulses outward always simultaneously and yet remains constant in its properties throughout change. By being aware of our inner by being aware of our inner motions and learning to observe ourselves, we can find the calm I or calm I within the weather surrounding our center of awareness 
When we grow, we arrive at the same place where we were before, but we arrive more experienced, higher on the spiral. So, how do you choose to relate to shit? How do you do it? How are you doing it now? How are you going to do it tomorrow? There's only the now, right? No amount of shame or guilt will change the past. No amount of anxiety is going to shape the future. How are you going to relate to shit in the now? What characters are you going to keep in your stories? What interpretations are you going to keep choosing? What varying degrees of that polarity are you going to entertain? How hot or cold are you going to make it? Because it's all the same, right? But you get to choose at which degree on the, on the scale that is. So thank you for listening. Next week, I'm actually going to have my first guest... My friend Naisha is going to join me, and we are going to talk about how we choose our judgments. So, join us next time. Right, thanks, guys. Love you. Bye.